millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now. Thank you so much called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. I hope you'll all check out the all new Zibby Mag, Z-I-B-B-Y-M-A-G, the literary lifestyle destination with essays, book news, a lit lifestyle feature, and even some classes. Check it out, zibbymag.com. Bo Sio is the author of Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. Bo is a two-time world champion debater and a former coach of the Australian National Debating Team and the Harvard College Debating Union. One of the most recognized figures in the global debate community, he has won both the World Schools Debating Championship and the World Universities Debating Championship. Bo has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, CNN, and many other publications. He has worked as a national reporter for the Australian Financial Review and has been a regular panelist on the primetime Australian debate program, The Drum. Bo graduated from Harvard University and received a master's degree in public policy from Tsinghua University. He is currently a Juris Doctor candidate at Harvard Law School. All right. Welcome, Bo. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. Thanks so much, Sibi. It's a huge honor to be here. So I have, to, I have to say to you, I wrote a big chunk of this book during the pandemic. And every afternoon, I'd, I'd go on a walk near the park out in front of my house, and it'd be about a 30-minute walk. And this was around the time when you started producing every day. And I'd listen to the programs on the walk. So it feels like I've been walking with you forever. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm so happy so- to be here. 
So <laughs> thrilled to hear that. That makes me so happy. Wow, that's really awesome. Uh, I hear every so often from people who, you know, had incorporated this at that time in their lives. And it really means so much to me knowing that we kind of went through that period of craziness together and that it was in some way helpful. So awesome. Very special thing. Thank you. Well, I am particularly delighted to hear that having delved into your book and learned more about you. And when I got the pitch for this book, I was like, you know what? That sounds so interesting. I know I'm going to learn a lot from this book. And I I was just like totally intrigued. Like, what does it mean to be a two-time debating world champion? And what can we learn? Because of course we all fight, <laughs> argue. It's such a waste of time. It's like crazy. And I loved how you wove in your own story and how you became this way. There's so much personal narrative in here, in addition to some of the advice and how you broke down arguments and everything. So why don't you, why don't you tell listeners a little about how this became a book and, and the whole process of writing it? Sure. So the story starts when I was eight years old. I moved from South Korea to Australia and I didn't speak English at the time. And I quickly learned that the hardest part of crossing language lines is adjusting to real-life conversation. And the hardest real-life conversations to adjust to were disagreements. You know, that's when people start to interrupt and the rhythms of everyday speech tend to break down. And that made me resolve at that young age to not disagree very much, to keep most of my thoughts to myself and to smile and just be a very agreeable person. And the thing that broke me out of that was in the fifth grade, my elementary school teacher promising me really that in debate, when one person speaks, no one else does. And to someone who had been spoken over and spun out of conversation and and interrupted, that felt like a kind of salvation. And so I you know, ended up pursuing it and it ended up being really the pursuit of you know, my relatively young life so far. And I ended up winning the world championships in January, 2016. And you know, this was a kind of a real highlight. And you know, this was the part where if it was a sports narrative or something, <laughs> a very sedentary one, this is when you know, the music would start playing and it was the height of it. And you remember what happened next was there was the incredibly divisive presidential election campaign here where the debates between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton became not only a symbol of polarization, but also a tool by which those dynamics worsened. And afterwards, I I was on the Schwarzman Scholarship, actually, in Beijing. Were you really? I really really was. You were a Schwarzman Scholar. Yeah, I was. I was in the second group. Stop. That's amazing. No, you know, true. that's my dad, right? I know that. I oh know that. It was high enough to blow up the book. Did you see that? No. Stop yeah. it. No, it's I true. I did not see that. Oh, my God. I could, I could well, have it's not in that. my. It's not in my advanced copy, and I no, don't know. Uh, we saved you. We saved you the surprise <laughs> for oh the conversation. Oh, my gosh. That is so funny. Wow. Okay. Blown away here. Okay. Um, no, I didn't even know that. All right. You know, I, I made it over there and it was a program started at the kind of height of optimism about cross-cultural exchange and between East and West, US and China. And that was when the trade war set in. 
Yeah. And, you know, all of these things kind of created a condition where it was very hard to think about disagreement as anything other than poisonous and harmful and painful. And it made me think all over again that maybe disagreeing is not worth it. Mm. And I started thinking back in the search for something a bit more positive to what had broken me out of that spell of conflict aversion in the first instance, and that was debate. And it was the activity that showed me that disagreement could be something more, that it could be a source of joy and revelation and intimacy and all of those things. And I wanted to make to make the case for it. And the reason why it's so personal is because I wanted to be you know, honest about where I was coming from, but also, frankly, as an author, I found it hard to write across the distance of my knowing something about debate, the reader usually coming to it fresh. And if I was a better writer, I think I might have been able to just do the third personal thing. But I had to think about someone who didn't know a whole lot about debate, and that was me when I was young. And I thought by taking readers on that journey, I'd be able to to walk them through and to do it bit by bit and, and bring it to more or less where I am now. So it's a book that gets people from coming new to a subject as I did and then ending up with the totality of all that I know on the subject. Wow. That's <laughs> that is so amazing. Well, I'm so glad you chose to to write it. I don't think it's a function of not being a good writer. It's <laughs> the best way to tell a story is to connect with somebody, right? And to to teach through storytelling, right? This is so effective. So instead of just learning about squirreling and debate, we get to hear your story about like being, you know, uncertain in that one context and being like, well, wait, what if we do it this way? They didn't say this about drugs. And, you know, what if we go, what if we say this? And, and so now I know what it means. Right. And now I'm not going to forget how it's like, it's like finding the loophole. Right. So anyway, I think the way it's like show don't tell, right. Isn't that just like the age old advice in writing? So I think so. I mean, you know, it, it does take a little bit of a bit of a mental jump to consider yourself worthy enough (laughs) to use the first person quite this much. But, you know, I think the thing that helped me do that is just the knowledge that, you know, I think when you're writing a book, you sometimes think it'll be the last word on the subject. And one thing I found rewarding is that you're putting forward, putting on the table all that you know, but really you're inviting people to a conversation. And the best part of seeing it go out into the world is the way in which it adapts Mm -hmm. and morphs and gets translated into different contexts and and the the conversations people are having in their homes and workplaces and so on. And, And so Yeah, just knowing that it's the beginning and it's a contribution to that ongoing conversation helped with that. Wow. I particularly liked when you taught us how to identify what we're even arguing about and how so often we bring in like 8,000 other things that are not always related to what we're talking about. I am totally guilty of this constantly. I start on one thing and then next thing you know, I'm talking about like you know, that trip we didn't take two weeks ago or whatever it is. It's like, I just bring it all into this big mishmash. And your advice here and the way you spell it out in terms of even just everyday conversation, the way you did with your parents, it's like, how do you know, wait, wait, what are we even arguing about? First, let's identify the argument and then let's take it apart. So tell me about how that tool of debate really can be translated to the home. 
and it's and it and it does begin in the home. And I think the reason for that is we do something very special with our loved ones, which is we decide to share our lives together. And there's obviously lots of wonderful things about that overlap. But one problem that arises is you could be disagreeing about a thousand things at any given time, right? Because there is so much that you share and 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 there is so much friction that comes with sharing so much time with people and, and knowing them in that way. And I think there are, you know, there's a particular kind of carelessness we have in those intimate relationships where we have this assumption they should get us without us even having said anything or right. that they're going to end up agreeing with us <laughs> by the time this is over, which is an assumption we wouldn't dare make about a stranger. So I do think it, it does really begin in the home. And what debate says, and it is a bit of a theme throughout the book, is that we have to be very deliberate about our disagreements and that every disagreement should start with some agreement. And that's agreement about, as you say, what it is that we're actually discussing. And once you're able to name the dispute and say, we are talking today about the dirty dishes and not about what what you did to me last month or how you looked at me the other day and so on, that brings a kind of a focus and prevents it from getting out of hand in this way. And one of the things that I discuss in the book is, you know, when if we're having a disagreement, for example, about sending the kids to the local public school, that seems like a pretty straightforward disagreement about what we should do and where we should send the kids to school. But embedded in that might be all kinds of other disagreements disagreements, factual disagreements about what we think the local school is like. There might be a sort of a philosophical disagreement about what we think our role as community members and neighbors might be to the local public school system. And then ultimately the disagreement about what we should do about it, whether we send the kids or not. And so before we launch into a disagreement, I think there needs to be this mini discussion Um, a kind of a negotiating period of what it is that we're actually talking about and how we're going to go about having this dispute to make sure it doesn't get out of hand. Very useful. Yes. One argument at a time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, And maybe, you know, I think our conversations tend to buckle under the weight of expectation that we place on them sometimes, you know, and, and I do want this book to be a toolkit that helps people have better conversations to be able to make their point to be heard. But it's better conversations. And and I think a part of that is acknowledging that we're going to have to do it a bit at a time. And as long as we're disagreeing in such a way that keeps the conversation going, there's some hope. Interesting. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. You know, your path to becoming a debater, it was almost lucky, right? You're like, well, this sounds interesting. And then you got more and more into it. You realized you were good at it. There was, you you know, even that preparation, it sounded like you loved it, right? You get your affirmative, whatever. Anyway, mm-hmm. you like run into the back and then <laughs> go to work. And, you know, you could just feel how excited you were in all those scenarios. How do you know like who is good at debate? Like, and I know we have applications of it in our homes and in every area of our lives, but in terms of actually like being a debater, like mm. what, what do you, could my kids be great debaters? Like, tell me about this. Like, how do you know what makes a great debater and how can you identify that in someone else? I think kids are often very good debaters. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and there is that you know, you see it in friends of mine with really young kids, you see in their impulse to question, mm-hmm. but more than that, to kind of needle you a bit, yes. just to see how they're received <laughs> and how far they can push it. And so that kind of makes me think we do have this argumentative impulse. And I think there is something really deep, and there is something accidental about how I got into it, but I think there is a deep attraction to putting forward an idea, having it received, having to come back at it. And that that process of evolution and being in that kind of really candid, vulnerable relationship with another, I think is so is such a special thing. And, and it is something that I think we naturally gravitate towards. But there are a lot of things in the world that can beat that impulse out of someone. And that could be the bullies on the playground. It could be often an adult not taking the view seriously, right? Or telling them to go away or be quiet. There are so many societal pressures to conform, obviously. And so I tend to think of it less as instilling in children in particular, uh, you know, the desire to debate because I think that's already there. Mm -hmm. I think it's about cultivating it and, and giving it a structure and a set of skills that allows it to express, or at least that's what I found. And then just the last little bit I'll say is one surprising thing that I've noticed about people who tend to be very good debaters is they tend to be slightly marginal figures. And if you you might remember from high school, the debaters are kind of wall flies, <laughs> slight oddballs. And I think the reason is those people who are a little bit peripheral, who are outsiders, 
they know to listen before they speak and they know to read a room before making their intervention. And I felt that obviously as, you know, culturally, linguistically moving to a new place. But I think this feeling of being an outsider or being marginal is something we all feel, right? Whenever we go to a new space or a place where we're not fully comfortable. And that I've found over the years is not antithetical to being a good debater. It can often be the start of it because debating and, you know, any conversation where you have a hope of persuading someone does have to start with listening. Well, I also feel like those oddball tendencies that can also draw you to writing. I mean, all that observation, it's the same skill set, right? Listening to language, listening to conversation, having to analyze when to join, when not to, like all of that. I went through this whole period of my life where I was very shy. And so I was like always analyzing conversation patterns and and just watching how people jumped in and jumped out mm-hmm. and the ease with which they could speak. And anyway, I feel like writing is a, is a good tool for that as well. I love that. I love that. And, you know, I think we, we're living at a time where people say quite carelessly that what we say doesn't matter or we can't change people's minds through the use of language. And I think maybe it was that English was a language I didn't have. I had to learn it one word at a time. That that instilled in me the sense what we say and how we say it matters. And I saw that as a debater. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter. I saw that when I was reporting. And and you're right, that writers have that impulse to to observe a whole lot before before they put it down. (laughs) Wait, so Bo, so... First of all, Schwarzman scholars, I you know, for those of people who are listening who might not know what it is, so my dad started this program in China where he took a cohort of students each year. You go, you meet each other, there's a whole campus. I got to go for the first years. Um, oh, you did? I did. I was there. It was so neat. And each year there's a class. And I have to say, I have been sent like lots of resumes and things like that. And I, I, you, you look at the, I look at the class and I'm like, I cannot believe people have done all these things at such a young right. age. <laughs> I also How couldn't. Is it even possible <laughs> that these kids can be so accomplished? So in addition to being the debate champion of the world and everything, tell me more about you and what you did before and after being a Schwarzman scholar and, and where you're going from here. They are unbelievably impressive people. And the thing that helps you get used to it is just seeing them in their pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in Australia and I I went to college at Harvard and and debate was a big part of it. And I always had an idea of, of wanting to go into public service to work on human rights issues and I, I mean, I couldn't resist the invitation to go because it seemed like it, it seemed like such a unique opportunity and such a unique time. I went in 2018 where there was this opening where there was some enthusiasm from both China and the United States, I think, for a kind of an exchange and and a way of finding some relationship that's going to be sustainable. And this was before a lot of the tensions that bubble up had arisen. And so the, you know, this program, you all kind of live in one house, like one college. And it seemed to me then, and it seems to me now, a kind of an edifice for an edifice that evinces a faith in the power of what we can do when we try to talk across difference. And in some ways, 
it can feel anachronistic at a time when there's so much geopolitical tension and and where conflict and nationalism and and splitting off into our different camps seems to be the order of the day but it still feels to me like an edifice towards a, a future that I hope we can continue to work towards that our differences can be more than a source of division and a source of weakness and I saw that in debate primarily but I saw it in that time too so I was there and and probably the the bit about the pajama thing is real because I think the thing that made the program work at its best was when we weren't dealing with each other as oh you're the person from America or you're the person from China but we saw each other in the particulars mm-hmm. and we started having particular conversations with particular people um right. and those are the parts that I remember Afterwards, I'm a newspaper reporter in Australia. I covered politics um, and business. And then I'm now at um, the law school at Harvard. And I think I'm still, you know, in all of these things, whether through storytelling or through writing or, or now in the law, still circling around the same theme that, that brought me to, to Beijing and, and, and to all of these different roles, which is what do we do with the fact that we're all different, but we have to find ways to live together. So are you going to run for office? You know, that, that I had thought about that for a very long time. And these days I'm less certain. Yeah. It seems a bit unsavory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It takes a lot out of you. Yeah. Wow. I'm so impressed. So from the book side, what did you learn having accomplished this feat? Like what would, what do you wish you'd known at the outset? Well, The first is that whatever work you don't do as an author, the reader is going to have to do. Mm. So there was so much time after I had gotten the basic outline done and and had had written a rough rough draft of it, where we just spent a long time polishing. And in particular, so the book is biographical in parts. There are stories of historical incidents where a lot of the great movements throughout history kind of crystallize in these encounters between people. Those are debates. And so there are stories to do with that. But then the third part is there are teaching bits where I'm coaching people to to learn the basics of debate and there are drills and and, and acronyms and exercises people can can use in their day-to-day life. And with that in particular, I just wanted it to be as polished as I possibly can so that people will be able to integrated into their daily lives. So I think that was one thing. And another was where we started the conversation, which is, I think, especially as a first-time author, and as a first-time author, sometimes you think, do I deserve this? (laughs) I think I I sometimes, there's a certain safety from adopting the voice of God, third person, raining down truths from on high. (laughs) Um, And now I read those books and I think, well, how do you know that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but so there was a fear about putting myself in the book mm-hmm. because I, I thought it would make it too limiting or it would make it that I'm not worthy in some ways of, 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 of the themes that I'm writing towards. But I think realizing that it's through individual experiences that we can get at great truths that that can feel that you can feel unworthy or small relative to what you're writing, but it's, I think it may be the only way to get at those truths that helped me overcome that. So I wish I'd known that too. Wow. 
Amazing. Bo, this has been so fun. I can't wait to call my dad and tell him. I can't believe I didn't know this. I feel like a moron, so I'm sorry. But I should have gotten the hard I should have gotten the final copy. But anyway, congratulations on your book. Congratulations on everything. I can't wait to follow your journey going forward. And I'm just so thrilled that that this all worked out like this. Really. Thanks so much. It it was a it was a real honor and, and actually a dream. So I'm really thankful for your time. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 